This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store, Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha in caverns deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 713 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I am your head number one, the internet's Joe Patrick. And I'm your head number two. My name is Matt Baum, and we are excited to bring you our first regular Slack Issues episode. We've been having so much fun reading stuff that we missed in our past that our THN AI assistant, Macho, suggested Slack Issues becomes a regular part of our back issue programming. So, in this episode, I'm making Joe read the first five issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1984. You know, we just did a Slack Issues regular episode two episodes ago. That was a special. That, that was our first Slack we're, Issues. We're unveiling regular. the regular episodes. Uh, I see. Yeah. The last one was a zero, a zero yeah. issue, uh, an, an alpha number one. And it was like a birthday thing. It didn't count. Uh huh. It was labeled number seven hundred and eleven. So, oh, did yeah? I guess it was. That's yes, true. it was. After that, we'll set you up with our must-read picks for next week's new comics. But now, the evil Shredder is about to attack, and us THN boys aren't going to cut him no slack. It's Slack Issues Review Time in the Ziggurat! It has come to my attention that the internet's Joe Patrick has never read the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics from Mirage Studios, and therefore cannot call himself a true turtle boy with an eye. Lucky for Joe, we have a segment perfect to solve this problem. It's time for another Slack Issues, the TMNT edition, where we are taking a look at the first four issues of Eastman and Laird's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from Mirage Studios, plus the Raphael one-shot, which would later be collected uh, like uh, Tales of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever. Raphael micro-series number one. Yes. Number one in a one-issue micro-series. Before we dive in, a little history here. The idea for the turtles started when Eastman and Laird were living together in Dover, New Hampshire. Eastman drew a masked turtle with nunchucks. Laird added the words "teenage mutant." Now, have you ever seen that drawing? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's there. It's crazy. Yeah, it's there. Like you can see it. Like yeah. Yeah, it looks much more like a turtle if a turtle was standing yes. upright. It's a proto. It's very much. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Proto TMNT. Much, yeah. much less anthropomorphized. In interviews, the two said that the TMNT concept was inspired by the New Teen Titans, the X Men, and Daredevil comics of the time, but the anthropomorphic turtles and comedy came from Howard. The duck. They loved Howard the Duck back in the day. Makes sense. TMNT premiered as a self-published black and white one-shot in 1984 at a small Comic-Con in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and it would go on to print TMNT comics under the Mirage banner all the way up until 2014, which is Pause. crazy. 
I need to pause and and discuss that because it was on and off. It wasn't like the entire time. Okay, right. Because Image Comics had the rights to TMNT comics yeah. for many years. Yeah, Eric, like Eric Larson's studio put them out. And during that time, they printed reprint stuff under Mirage. They printed all kinds of stuff. So Mirage existed okay. until 2014. All right, fair enough. The first four issues were printed as oversized comics. Funny story, they didn't know the actual dimensions of a comic book (laughs) when they went to this printer to talk about them. They just knew that someone in town was printing this magazine on newsprint, and they're like, that's what we want. You know, makes a comic. And the printer went, yeah, we can do that. And the comic came back big. (laughs) It's basically (laughs) a magazine size. Yeah, like seven and a half by ten and five sixteenths or something like that is is the actual measure, which is big. (laughs) Right? On the the regular page. The comic itself was even bigger than that. So that's how big it is. Well, yes. They had a print run of less than 3,000 issues at the time. They were sold locally at drugstores, Hallmark gift shops, and of course, comic shops. But... It was ads in the Comic Buyer's Guide magazine that drew the attention of distributors. That's basically how they got famous. Comic Buyer's Guide magazine. Which is just nuts to think that stuff like that even happened. That's how they did it, baby. That's how things got done back then. If you want a first print in high grade, you're looking at spending well over 30 grand. Not too long ago, a CGC 9.6 graded TMNT number one sold for $54,000. So, be prepared to shell out some cash. If you can even find it. Now, a word of warning. There are numerous forgeries of the first printing out there. The bogus copies are easy to spot because their interior pages were printed on stark white paper, not the off-white newsprint of the originals. So, if you think you got an original one and it's on stark white, bad news. You got it. I mean, like, how would... like? How would anybody that knows anything about comics ever even fall for that? That's weird. It, back in the day, it was a thing. Because people didn't know. I think they were so hard to find that people didn't have anything to compare it to. So they just showed up. Print, people didn't print comics. Comics weren't printed on stark white paper. Like Baxter Baxter paper is the first well, of stark course. white paper I've ever but seen. But these guys comics. printed it themselves. That was the whole story. And so it got Fair. out that yeah, these I guys just printed a comic book, basically. So why wouldn't it So it could have been on paper. copier paper for all anybody knew. Yeah. And there was no, there was nothing to compare it to. Nobody had these first prints because they were gone. I mean, they they just sold. <laughs> they were all out there. The guy that um, put on the comic show, he has a really good interview. He has like an interview piece in this first issue we read, which is actually like a 35th anniversary celebration or something. But he was talking about how he had 200 pristine copies of this this first TMNT. Right? Could have put his kids through college and their kids probably as well. 200 beautiful copies traded them for another hot indie book at the time. It was 1984. What would that hot indie book be? You had to guess. Mm. Not Marvel, uh, not like DC. A, this was indie. Like, oh. a, like a number one? Or? Yes. It's a new series by a hotshot writer. A new writer. series in 1984. Yes, by a hotshot writer that would go on to work at Vertigo later on. Okay, hold on. Give me two seconds to think about it. I didn't know there would be a quiz. I'm just giving you a, hot writer, give you a hint. A hot writer that would go on to write for Vertigo. Uh, okay, Miracle Man. No. Miracle pretty Man. Pretty decent. Miracle pretty Man. Pretty decent Vertigo? guess, though. Well, no, Alan Moore went on to write for Vertigo. Okay, that's fair. Yes. Bill Willingham and his Elementals. Oh, Elementals. He traded oh, 200 copies of TMNT for <laughs> <laughs> Elementals number one. <laughs> 
what can you do though? Right? I mean, come on. So yeah. You know what? I should have set my sights lower. Yeah. So let's get into it, Joe Patrick. Number one from 1984. We know it's oversized. How you feel? You dug in, you read, you read your first issue here. We meet the turtles. They get the, we get the backstory with the ooze and the guy that's crossing the street. Uh, which, they call it the goo throughout this. They call they it, the call it the goo. Later on, they'll call it ooze. But uh, they rebrand at some point. Yeah. Um, so you have a note here and I just want to address it that the printings, uh, the final printings are rather the, the actual finished product first prints were seven and a half inches by 10 and 15 sixteenths inches. So figured a hair's breadth away from 11. Right. So seven and a half by 11 inches, a standard current size comic book, which, you know, uh, 80s comics would have been a little bit bigger than this. But uh, a comic book these days, a standard comic size is 6.625 inches by 10.187. That's very specific dimensions. And so it's a little bigger. Like It yeah. doesn't seem like a huge jump, six point. You know, six point six two inches to seven and a half, but like a full inch on you know either side almost. That's they were weird sized, yeah, noticeably different, yeah, noticeably different, but also not magazine sized, not golden age size. It's it's weird, which it's is probably a, why they, oddball. It's probably why they made the mistake because it looks so close. Yeah. They're like, yeah, and then you set it on top of another comic book and go. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Like if you just had it like laying, like if you just had it like laying on your coffee table or whatever, you, you might not even notice. Yeah. Of it. But if you had it next to a stack of your other stuff, you'd be like, ah, you try and it. bag and board that sucker. I got to buy be, all new bags and boards. You're going to be one dumb thing. A pro tip spring for the whole hundred pack of bags and boards. If it means getting one bag and yeah, board for that TMNT number one. Okay. Just, just go ahead and do it. Um, I already knew a lot of the stuff, like the comic book references, you know, the Daredevil thing, you know, and uh, so... Tell the kids about the Daredevil thing real quick. A lot of people probably don't. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, essentially, the turtles were created by the canister of radioactive material that Matt Murdock saved the old man from in Daredevil number one. It clatters into the gutter and busts open, coating a bunch of turtles that were in a a fishbowl that a kid dropped. And a splinter, who apparently was already showing the dexterity of a much uh, more humanoid rat, uh, got them out of the ooze and tried to clean them off, which got him all oozy as well. And thus the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were born. There you go. And so, yeah, they like, they very, very like overtly, like if you know anything about comics history, they're like, this is wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's Daredevil's origin. Totally. So yeah. Look to the left. It's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Also takes place so, in New York and everything. So it's all right. Well, there. yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that part is fun. Like later on in um, issue two or three must be issue two. There's a direct reference to the Baxter building. And not because of the villain's name. Yeah. It's the Baxter building from the Fantastic Four. And so like, uh, they wear their love of comics on their sleeve. And I think the book is charming for that reason, or in part for that reason. Um, I also knew about uh, how the cartoon changes the origin a bit and makes Splinter a human man. That yes. turns into a rat instead of a rat that becomes a rat man. Yes. And I think art, they did that in the Archie comics too, I think. Well, the Archie comics were, uh, were 
Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles adventures were based on the cartoon. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And so like all of their lore cam- comes from the cartoon. So um, it's uh, Shredder is Oroku Sake and Hamato Yoshi was. Right. Um, Splinter. S- s- became Splinter. But in the comics, Hamato Yoshi is Splinter's owner. And so it's kind of fun. Like, you remember that scene in the original 1990 movie where um, they are, like, mimicking the jujitsu moves and it's these tiny, like, stop-motion little <laughs> yeah. uh, puppets mid-transformation? Like, that's the origin. <laughs> like, that's how Splinter learned how to uh, be a ninja, and then he passed that down to his sons. Yeah. So a lot of the, a lot of the stuff is there. You know, if you're familiar with the cartoon, you're going to be in good shape. Um, it, it is a lot darker. It's violent. Um, definitely they, ki- they kill, um, which, you know, they're ninjas. So, like I'm not, I wasn't shocked by that, but, but they're only killing evil ninjas in this. Well, right. They're not killing, you know, they're not out there killing muggers. Or right. That, right. That comes up later <laughs> in a different comic. Yeah. We'll address that. But yeah, like they're not shy about killing a foe if, if they have to, like, uh, I was surprised, however, are we spoiling? We're, we got to be doing spoilers. Yes, we can here, spoil right? this. It's all right. I mean, come on. I just wanted, I just wanted to ask. Um, I was, it's been around. I, I know that it doesn't take, but I was shocked to see that they kill Splinter at the end. I mean, um, Shredder. Shredder. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm, I was shocked to see that they killed Shredder at the end. Well, that was part of the, the so part of the deal was. It was a one shot. This was just. They didn't think it's coming back. Messing around. And they didn't think yeah. anybody would care. And they showed it to their buddies at this comic show. They're like, hey, we made a comic. What do you guys think? And people were stopped and went, this is really good. And you have to make more of this. And they yeah. were like, oh, crap. You know, um, we, we've got to get into it. Other, other first impressions is that uh, other first impressions, the art is good. But I, I, as much as I appreciate what Kevin Eastman has going on in the art, I think Peter Laird is a better artist judging by the pinups and stuff that are elsewhere. Like we read reprints, right? Sure. And so, um, the first issue had a reprint, uh, had a, was a reprint with a, a new cover by Peter Laird and it's gorgeous. It's a much better drawing than anything Kevin Eastman well, did. Well, he did that cover years and years and years later too, though. I understood. Yeah. He, that so. cover is dated 1992. So yeah. it's almost a decade after, but like Kevin Eastman was the artist of the book, but they were both artists. They well, they both drew it. And I was just actually watching that cartoonist kayfabe shoot interview with Eastman. And he was saying they both drew together and melded their styles because they did not mm-hmm. want the styles to be separate. Cause they were asking him, uh, there's differences in the art. Who drew this page? Who drew this page? And he was like, honestly, I can't tell you. You know what? I actually, that makes sense to me because there are some, uh, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but there are some pages in f- later issues that are markedly better than others. Definitely. And I just, I, I chalked it up to like, oh, not so good at people, but really great at drawing, you know, this robot mm-hmm. or whatever. Sure. But it could be that, you know, Eastman isn't drawing at that time. It's Peter Laird. Yeah. You know? Now, he did say he could tell one of the things that don't come through in that doesn't come through in the digital version that we read is like how t- 
toned this book is. They did a bunch of like sepia toned work and it looks really it's, good. It's zip, it's zip tone. There's it's a book is full of zip tone. Yeah. But I mean, they, like, they layered. Uh, it and that's in the first, in the first issue. Yeah. The, the one shot that they self published was all like nothing but zip tone shading. Oh yeah. But, but they, then if you look at the later, the second and third and fourth issues, those that's much more, um, like layered shading where yeah. it is uh, a lot more gr- uh, shades of gray rather than just the dot effect. Definitely. And you so can't you see can, any you of that You can tell that here. they had kind of upped their level in the, in the, in the later issues. Definitely. You, you can't really see any of that here. And yes, the art is rough. They were young. They weren't artists at the time. They were just screwing around. Sure. And I think for two kids screwing around, like the action here is really good. There's some great pose work. I like the panel after when they're fighting Shredder and there's just like this panel of them standing in front of him already to team up and take him and they're all cut up and bloody and it's just like their fists and their yeah, weapons yeah. like they've got some really good point of view work here. It's impressive. Yeah, I mean, look, they they were no slouches like they were fans of the medium and also fans, I'm sure, of Kung Fu movies and all oh, sorts definitely. of yeah. other inspirations. And um, yeah, so it's like no shade. It's just, you know, it's when you look at the figure drawing or sure. the drawings of the humans or the anatomy or like the way a character is holding a gun, like you can, that's where it comes through. Like these, these guys are kids for sure. Know, very, very talented kids. Yeah. But then they'll draw like a beautiful kind of like splash page. That's a group shot. And it's like, Oh, you know, really, really well done. So yeah, they're super duper talented. Um, one last thing that I, I definitely noticed right off the bat, no April, no April O'Neill in this first issue. No, she shows up next issue. We get to meet her, I believe. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and she's also not a reporter. Not yet. Nope. <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, let's get to issue yeah, two. So, let's but do it. Th- yeah. But this, this first issue, like there's no really, uh, there's no gray scaling in this because they probably had it printed on the cheap. Yeah. It's black and white plus zip a tone for shading effect. And that's it bare bones. But then you jump to the next issue and suddenly the art quality. Huge. The jump. technical, the technical quality of yeah. the art makes a huge leap, huge jump. Let's jump to issue two. Let's do it. Also, they don't show shredders body. They just show a piece of his armor there. And they're like, I guess. Well, he's but he, dead. but yeah, yes, but he, yeah, no. he gets stabbed through the chest by two katanas and then falls off the roof holding a hand grenade, which then explodes. I mean, sure. But so, like, hey, I've I seen mean, villains come back from way worse than that. So, yeah, <laughs> I, look, I've read comics, man. I know how it works. Comics, but I'm bro. like, it, it's, it, I think it's very clear as far as their intent in this first issue, thinking it was only going to be a one and done, right. like uh, th- that shredder was dead. Now, and th- then they were too popular for that to be the reality. Now, with that said, they crank out issue two the same year, 1984, which is impressive yeah. because they're doing this all on their own. And you're right. The art is a big step up. You can tell their work. I mean, the, t- the technical, I don't, uh, I mean like the actual literal technological quality, like the ability for them to do gradients of right shading like something's different about the printing here so i don't know if this is where they like you know they got funding or what or they found a publisher or a printer that knew what the hell they were doing instead of getting their book 
copied at a glorified Kinko's, but this is still oversized. Like, it, by the this way, this is a so. much better looking, a much better looking comic. Yeah, this is your first appearance of Baxter Stockman and April O'Neil and the Mousers robots. So. Uh, who is black, by the way? Baxter Stockman's black, which is something that anybody familiar with the comics will know. But people that are only familiar with Baxter Stockman through the cartoons will not. No. So they made him a white guy. Racists. Yeah. They made him a white guy. Uh, they made him a white guy. Yeah. Which <laughs> I, like I've known for a while that Baxter Stockman was black in the comics, but like, I'm why, why'd they make him white? I don't get it. I do think this is a much more comic book feeling issue too. You've got robots. Well, you've got tech. sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. They go straight sci-fi. There's almost no ninja stuff here whatsoever. We're dealing with basically a technological madman. You know, who has a plan to take over New York by using his mousers to eat the foundations of important buildings. And if you don't pay, they'll fall into the earth, you know, like, oh, he's like a Dr. Doom almost kind of guy. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And April works for him. Not a reporter. She's actually. No, she's his lab assistant. Yeah. And like a computer expert. We learn other things like. Donatello is really good with machines and computers and stuff here too, which is yes. This is the first appearance of Donatello doing machines. Yeah. And it's like, this is issue two. I totally forgot that all that stuff that is rooted in the cartoon and the Archie comics was right here. Like issue one, issue two, they issue two issue, issue one. Raphael is, is pretty intense, but uh, really they all kind of sound the same. Totally. Yeah. In issue one. So they don't really have individual personalities other than Raphael is a bit more tightly wound. Yeah. In this issue, though, uh, we're we're still not to party dude levels here, but Donatello no. is obviously very smart. Raphael is almost unhinged as far as being an angry guy. Yeah. And uh, Leonardo is clearly in a leadership role. And so, yeah, it's like it didn't take long for them to assert individual personalities. I'm sure they talked to somebody, right? And someone was like, look, they're cool and the weapons are great because it separates them, but you've got to give them separate personalities. You have to. They on like honestly in number one, they they really all sounded the yeah. same. Yeah. I mean they were kind of they were dudes, you know, ninjas. There was still some humor there, but they all sounded the same. Here they're definitely starting to speak like the characters we know today. No question. Yeah. Like the in number one, the only it's also very, number one, it's also very stoic. You know, it's yeah. very serious, Frank Miller-esque, right? Um, and so the only hint of the Kawabunga future of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is in the origin where they start to transform and like their first words are radical and pizza. Yeah. You know, like that's that's it. Moto Guzzi <laughs> is one Moto Guzzi, yeah. Issue two is definitely saying issue one happened. It all happened there. They're saying for the origin story of Splinter and the Turtles, check out issue one, you know? And then it says one hour later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is great. She's like, what a Splinter fantastic says, story. Uh, Splinter says, uh, or April asks them, you know, where did they come from? And Splinter says, oh, happy to tell you, buckle up. It's a long story. And then it says, see to me, meet the Turtles number one. And then it goes one hour later. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great way to do it. We get to see Baxter Stockman being a bad guy. We get to see the turtles dealing with a different kind of threat and they can do stuff. Like we mentioned, we see Donatello messing around with the computers. They end up shutting down the mouser attack, but in doing so we find out that master splinter has been kidnapped. Oh my God. I, I, uh, 
at first it took it took me aback just before we get to the very very end here. It, Baxter Stockman's uh, building. It's not even his building actually. You 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 would you would think that it's his building because his name is Baxter, right? And the name of the building is the is the Retzab building, which is Baxter spelled backwards. It's like okay, that's the name of your building, buddy. But no, that's not his headquarters. It's literally the Baxter building as designed by Jack Kirby in Fantastic Four. Oh, totally. And they they flipped it to Rex a Retzab building for obvious reasons, but right. there's no hiding it. No. It's hilarious. I mean, they weren't trying to hide at this point, though. No, no, of course. All right, let's jump to number three. Although I will say the T-shirt iron-ons for sale in the back are kick-ass. <laughs> Love it. Oh yeah, dude. We uh, couldn't afford T-shirts, but we could sell iron-ons. <laughs> um, and you know what? And this uh, this issue also full of really great like two page two page splashes. Yeah. And you know, it, it's yeah, you could see them working. Like they had a leap in ability. Yeah, and and maybe just in talent. Yeah, they sat down and worked on it really, really hard. I don't know, but there's definitely each issue. It gets more and more noticeable. Yeah, that's because there's a lot of time in between each issue. Well, not that much. So, I mean, we're not talking about like years. You know, maybe six months. Oh, but see, like, look at this. Uh, uh, you know. Like the first one was May 1984 when it premiered. The second issue was October 1984. So that's not that long. I guess, yeah. You know? But they're also advertising for the Raphael one shot in 1985. Uh, again, we might be, again, we're looking we at, might a, be, we're looking we at might a, be seeing reprints. Yeah, but this is a reprint. It's hard to tell. Yeah, but yeah. this is definitely a reprint we're looking at. So issue right, number three, three, also 1985 when it comes out. So they were cranking these out, but I mean, this is early 85. There's like January or something that came out. We get to see, Oh, let me go back to my notes. Sorry. These were all still oversized. There was a New York comic con printing of this. They did. That is super hard to find. And people freak out about it. Apparently they had 500 advanced copies of number three printed just to sell the comic con. This edition is only identifiable because it's, it's a blue and white cover, but the whites on the New York comic con version are super stark white. That's the only way you can tell. And I don't know any of these <laughs> out there. There's only 500 of them. So good luck. Uh, it's a beautiful cover. Oh, like, and by the way, all of these are wraparound covers. They're yeah. all front and back. This is the first cover though, where I think you really see them working. Like there's real good depth to this it. This is a gorgeous, this is a gorgeous cover. Yeah. It's this really very, very textured. It's finely detailed, really nice looking. So this is your yep. first appearance of the turtle van. We also get the first appearance of the aliens that Krang is a member of, but not Krang himself. Dimension X. We meet the U-Troms, and they're the precursors to what would become Krang on the television series. Krang makes his first appearance on the cartoon and in Archie comics. So, But here's the idea. Here they are. It's Krang. No question. I mean, like these- I'm surprised to hear that he didn't uh, first appear in the comics. No. They decided Based on them being here. Yeah. They decided he was going to be the second side story of the cartoon because shredder wasn't necessarily enough. And the, well, this begins the first time we meet him in issue three, we take a break from that for the one shot Raphael. We're going to talk about number four sets up how the turtles 
go to see what's up. And then five, six, and seven, they're literally in space with these things. Yeah, they they go at the end of um, issue. Well, Four. we'll get to yeah. it. Yeah, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But let's let's stay here for the moment. Splinter is missing. Turtles are running around looking for him. And again, this art, another huge step up. This looks fantastic. It does look very good. In fact, it looks, I, I think um, they were able to do a lot more with the shading in issue two, but it's kind of intense. Like they yeah. found a new toy and like played with it so hard, you know, that it almost wore out. It's much more subdued. So this issue's got a lot of great uh, depth and, and shading in a much more like subtle and reasonable way. So it, it, they're kind of finding their, their artistic footing here. Finally in issue three, it does look very good. Yeah, it really does. And they're developing personalities more too. We see Raphael freaking out. We see Leonardo trying to like talk him down a bit, sort of being the heart of the team and whatnot. I mean, it's sort of the turtle van. It's not really the turtle. Van. I mean, it's it just will, a win- It's just a Volkswagen bus. It will become the turtle van, though. That's the thing. So, <laughs> in the comic, it becomes yeah. The they van? they will soup it up into the turtle van later. All right. Okay. So, and I believe April still owned the turtle van and the Archie ones too. I don't recall for certain. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't recall. But this whole issue is basically a chase scene. They're out driving around in April's van looking for Shredder. And it turns out another VW thing or not thing splinter. They're looking for a splinter. Oh, pardon me. Looking for a splinter. turns out another VW bus was part of uh, a, cro- a robbery or something. The cops see April's bus and they go, that's gotta be it. Pull them over. And during the chase scene, they end up racing next to the criminals that are also driving the VW that are, are driving a VW bus. And the yeah. turtles are able to like, you know, do some ninja stuff it, <laughs> here and there. It's very blues brothery, you know, kind of slapsticky. Yeah. The whole car, thing's car chase stuff. The whole thing's basically a car chase, but it looks really good. They get really yeah. in depth here. It's well done. Uh, I love this splash page where they stop the crooks and the cops show up to surround them and they're all yelling uh, some variation of freeze and it's halt. Don't move. Hold it. Uh, stop, freeze, cease and desist, remain motionless, do not ambulate. <laughs> All it, Every cop is yelling something different. It's pretty funny. I mean, that made me laugh. No, I, I thought this was a good issue. Not a whole lot goes down, but I think they're really showing off their artistic talent here. Oh, holy, cu- uh, the, the page right after that, uh, the splash page where it's uh, the van driving down in a neighborhood street. Yeah. This is a stunning piece of art yeah it's great this is a gorgeous page they drew the hell out of this stuff it's crazy yeah. the depth they brought it's to the so city. gross looking new york city in the 80s man they mm. did draw it super crappy yeah but i mean like it was new york was a sewer back then it was gnarly well and i also think that april lives in a rougher part of town as well so sure now in the epilogue which i don't know if this was actually contained in the original issue this epilogue but i honestly couldn't tell you yeah i guess the epilogue was here so there you go. Yes, we we do get to see what happened to Splinter and when he was fighting off the Mousers, when they came to the Turtles Lair and everything, they ended up taking him to back to Baxter's laboratory and whatnot, where we find out much more is going on there. Oh, not Baxter's laboratory, TGRI. Oh, pardon the, me, TGRI, which is the the front for the front for the aliens. Yes, is it's either T- ba- Baxter's Baxter's shit was totally different, is totally separate. TGRI or TG? 
T-G-R-I, I think. Okay, it might be a G. It it's stylized, so it's hard to tell. It's kind of tough in yeah. these, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, the Baxter's stuff was totally separate. Like, it was a normal-looking building. It, right. it was a science lab. April had a job there. This place is off the books. Like, there's no record of it even existing. It, this is where the aliens are hiding in secret. Right. Now, that is a He's discovered Splinter is discovered after fighting off the monsters by two workers, but the workers turn out to be robot suits with krangs in their belly, basically driving them around. Later on, we'll find that out. We don't see that quite Conf yet. Confirmed. It is T C R I. Okay. Is the is the acronym? I I don't know what that stands for. We find out later. That, I'm sure. There it is. But the final page, we see Splinter coming into a room, and here are the weird little old. Utrons or whatever the Krang aliens on a table and they're all having a drink and their bodies have like <laughs> it the looks chest like they're open. having a coffee break. Yeah, they're chilling, you know. <laughs> this is your proto Krang. So we take a break from this story to jump to the first micro series, which is like these one shots they did where they introduced all the turtles, which is brilliant because this is how you say. Okay, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a a chance for each. Turtle to shine on their own. Yeah. Let them breathe and do their thing. We get Raphael number one. And in this one, it's your first appearance of Casey Jones. So again, all these characters were right here from the very beginning. It blows my mind. So we get to see Raph basically. Well, I mean, they had to come from somewhere, bud. I suppose. I just, I forget that all this stuff happened so early in the series. For some Fair, reason, yeah. I, in my head, and I've read these plenty of times, but in my head, I remembered some of that stuff trickling in later. But I mean, it's like effectively the third issue that's ever been, or the fourth issue that's ever been printed and boom, here's Casey Jones. And... We get to see Raph dealing with his rage issues and we get to see him like learn a lesson through this vigilante kid that's doing it wrong, essentially. Like when he meets Casey Jones, Casey Jones is inspired by heroes he saw in a martial arts movie or something to grab his sports equipment and go out and fight crime. But he's a little too overzealous and he's beating people almost to death, essentially. And you see Raph coming in and being like, oh, hey there, buddy. That's <laughs> a little much, you know? You got to chill out. Yes. Of course, in true comic book fashion, they have to fight first. And, you know, before they can come to be friends and side together. But this is how they become best friends, essentially. Raphael and Casey, like, they're best bros. Yeah. It, you know, that's all this issue is, is just basically a fight scene for much. the entire length of it length of it but i do want to uh, call attention to this opening scene where they are sparring the uh michelangelo and Raphael are sparring they're right. in the sewer sewer layer or no they are in april's apartment building yes. they're um in april's apartment building kind of getting settled in and raf and michelangelo are sparring michelangelo gets the better of him and Raphael loses it yeah uh, he is, he is like almost ready to beat Michelangelo to death with a pipe wrench and he has to be stopped and then he snaps out of it. Like, so this is where, this is now we're seeing, okay, Raphael is an angry young man. Right. You know, we're, we're getting, we're getting that deep personality stuff. Yeah. He's got serious rage issues. And again, Leo is the one that tries to like break everything up and 
bring the situation back down. And he's like, you got to chill out. And he runs away. And that's where he meets another angry young man. Yeah. Casey. And he gets to learn like, okay, now I get it. That kid, me, we're very similar. I got to do this better. I got to show this kid how to do it better. And it's your first appearance at Casey Jones. Not a whole lot happens, but this is a great issue. It's really good. And like, the- it's, it is good. Um, Casey Jones is insane. Yeah. Like totally literally nuts. clinically he's an insane person. Yeah. Uh, because he's running around cackling like the Joker, you know, or the creeper or whomever <laughs> Ca- insert cackling villain of your choice. Like wild dog. <laughs> well, sure. Like while, he, while he's in action running from, you know, assault to assault, he is like cackling to himself and he's a crazy man. He needs to be institutionalized. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> not encouraged. Certainly not encouraged, Raphael. Kind of a parody of all these vigilante characters that were in comics. You have the classics like Batman and Daredevil and all these characters where something tragic happened in their past and helped them choose the path to go out and fight crime. Um, yada, yada, yada. I thought it would be funny if we had a character who was inspired to do the same, but just from watching too much bad television like TJ Hooker and A-Team. <laughs> yeah. Which he is, in fact, watching TJ Hooker in this comic. Oh, that's right. That's right. When we first see him in this comic, he's watching TJ Hooker. Later on. And he's, laugh- he's laughing at TJ Hooker blowing a guy away. Yeah. Later on, April O'Neil falls in love with him. Oh. Yeah. Hey, you know. You know. Let's go to issue the four. Heart wa- the heart wants what the heart wants. Let's get back to the search for Splinter in issue four. Again, this art makes another uh, jump. So this cover, this is a very famous Turtles image that I, like this is burned into my brain oh, as yeah. one of the earliest Turtles things that I saw. And it's legitimately beautiful. I don't know who did this painting. This is done uh, by a guy named Michael Dooney who went by Michael Gizmo oh. Dooney, but this is the second- oh, nice. Second printing. The first original printing was a green and white cover of the turtles. Okay. Then I don't, yeah, I, this, this painted cover. It's awesome. Is beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. They're fighting the robots and you can see them like beginning. It looks like something's beginning to teleport them away. There's like shining lights all over. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's a lot of airbrush effects. This could be on the side of a van. Okay, this is the one. That's that's how good it is. This is the so this issue, the second printing of this issue has an eight-page story by Ryan Brown and Jim Lawson that's in the back that was not in the first printing. That's what I was thinking. Oh, but, right. That's uh because Jim Lawson, he was a Turtles artist later on for a lot of years. Oh yeah, that's right. He was. That that's a name I recognize because I believe he drew the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, comic book adaptation, hey, oh which my. I owned. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like that, this guy ended up drawing Turtles comics for a long time, uh, if, if I recall correctly. The Foot Clan is after the Turtles because they're mad they killed Shredder, or so they think. Right. We're back to full-on ninja action, and there's a lot of it, and it's really good. Like Donatello catching the throwing stars in his club and stuff. That was like, pretty rad. That's awesome. And, <laughs> right. uh, Leonardo kicks a guy off of a roof. You yeah. Know? So look, they're not, uh, they're not scared to hurt people. No, they're not scared that, to that hurt people. That deserve to be hurt. And it's violent, but they're not putting the violence on the page. Like we're not seeing guys splat on the ground. We're, we're not we seeing We are seeing swords, some like, mild, we're, we're seeing some, you know, mild stabbings yeah. and some, some slices, but not full on like, you know, nope. nobody's getting their arms cut off and then buckets of blood spinning out, spilling out of it like a 
like Kill Bill or anything like no. that. No. And for the longest time, like I remember being so angry at the Archie comics and the cartoon because it's like, oh, they, they dumbed it all down and they took all the, the badass stuff out of it. And it's like revisiting these years later. I'm looking at it and it's like, look, these weren't that hard. They didn't, they didn't dumb it down that much. I mean, sure, these turtles kill. Those turtles do not. But yeah, I mean, Michelangelo, Michelangelo doesn't stab anybody no, in the cartoon. No, you know. but I mean, the fun is here. The alien weirdness is here. They end up at the TCRI building where they discover Shredder floating in suspended animation. And Splinter. They, pardon me. Where they discover Splinter floating in Shredder and Splinter. That's too close. It's just too close. <laughs> it, it, I get it. it it's, it's tricky. But he's alive. He's floating in suspended animation. The turtles quickly realize there's a lot more going on with this building than they thought. Uh, April has a very interesting choice of a haircut here. <laughs> she got, went out and got a perm, and I think it's supposed to be bad because she badmouths it. I think so. I think she's joking, but it does look like she's co-opting some black culture, <laughs> like that woman from Oregon. No, it's a, <laughs> trust me, I've seen plenty of white women with a perm like that. I'm not it's saying, not a yeah, black thing. It's bad. It's bad is all I'm saying. It's, it is bad. Yeah. The turtles go to save their master, and this is where things get like, full on sci-fi and the next, like I said, three issues, the turtles are going to be in space dealing with an alien threat. So we had ninjas and Krang aliens in this one. Let's not um, gloss over the very comedic break into the building scene where Donatello tricks a bunch of um, video cameras and laser trip wires with a pigeon puppet. And a mirror and a, and a pole, a Polaroid, a Polaroid yeah. of the roof. Yeah. It's, gr- it's very comedic. Yeah. There's still humor here. You know, they, they've got a whole thing where they're just dorks breaking the bir- into the this bird place. puppet. It's a bird puppet. Got me, man. I was like, Oh God. Yeah. Like the, the humor is definitely here. And that's what I forgot. I just haven't read these in so long, but there is a lot of humor here. It is very serious. They're upset. Like when they find, Splinter and they think he's dead, but he's not. It's a great splash page too, with like techno stuff all over the place, like full on Jack Kirby techno stuff, wires and like tubes and all kinds of weird Mm -hmm. shading. It's really cool. (laughs) From there, from there, they start to free Splinter, but all the aliens show up with their robot suits and they've got guns and everybody's outmanned and they don't know what they're going to do. And they end up jumping onto this platform where they are teleported away and we have no idea what's going to happen. It looks like they're all dead, but turns out they're going to space. These are our first four issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles you've, that you, you've never read well, before. How do you five, feel? Technically. Five. Um, are you invested? Are you in? Like, is it when you're younger or even now, do you see I, the magic? If I had read these as a kid, that would have been it yeah. for me. I would, I would have been all in on this from day one. Now I was already all in on uh, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was a huge fan, but that was because of the cartoon and the arcade game, uh, TMNT, the arcade game. So I, I had a couple of the Archie comics, which I liked, but they were clearly based on a different version of the property. These, if I had read these as a young kid, you know, in 84, 85, 86, when these came out, I would have been, you know, six, seven, eight. Yeah. And I would have been, I would have been just like 
completely absorbed. I was just a little older, and the fourth issue was the first one that I picked up. I believe I was I saw it at a Star Realm here in town years and years and years ago, and that it was a full color cover, so it was like second, third, or fourth printing or something. I'm sure I don't know, but it just nailed me. I had to have that when I saw that painting. I was like, oh shit, and I didn't know anything about it. I picked up issue four. I was like, what is even happening here? And just fell in love. That was it. And from there, I went back, found the first three issues after convincing my dad that I'll mow the lawn for 60 years or something. And if he drives <laughs> me back to La Vista so I can get those. <laughs> and yeah, I I still love these to this day. Realm. And Not a convenient trip for literally anything. anyone in yeah. the city. Yeah, it was it was out of the way. Nobody lives in La Vista. I mean, there were people that definitely lived in La Vista back then. Yeah, I don't I don't you <laughs> prove it. The point uh, being like if you think about a lot of creators that we love or teams of creators that created something, right? Like, you know, not Marvel nonwithstanding. I'm not talking about like Kirby and, you know, Stanley inventing Fantastic 4, but independent stuff, like independent creators that created something that lasted think of all these first issues that we read and like first storylines and whatnot look at image comics in the 90s which is not that far off from this right where you had seasoned professionals guys that could draw guys that had been in the business trying to start their stories doing a miserable job compared to this I mean, putting out yeah, garbage no, 100%. compared to this. Well, and that's, I think, the difference there. And I and I think that you kind of hinted at it already, or you said it without saying it, is that those guys were not writers; they were artists. Yeah, they were. You know, they weren't creators in the sense that they were accustomed to doing the whole job. Yeah. They were artists that were hot shots and thought that they could do it for themselves. And God bless them, they did it. Through some dumb sheer force of will, Image Comics caught on because they were the hot shit and people didn't care that the comics were terrible. This, though, these were two guys that had to do everything themselves from the start of their careers, and it shows. Like, they're better writers here than... Any of the image guys, oh, without except, for, doubt. except for maybe Eric Larson. Well, and they even say like, we were writers that could draw. They don't say we were right. artists that could write. Like they admit we got better at this as we went and it was yeah. pretty rough when we started. But yeah, this is thought out. But the the writing in all of these is very good. The, the plots are very well developed. They're yeah. complex without being too complex. There's a lot, you know, they, I feel like they kind of rush a little bit. And I think that that's, that might be born out of, um, a excitement to get to the next thing, uh, which is a very kind of young creator thing to a problem to have. It's like, you're so excited for the next idea. That's right. Like, Yay. But also you don't know if you're going to have a next issue. And so I, so for example, I thought that the Baxter Stockman issue, like that could have been two issues because it felt like it kept going and going and going easily. Yeah. But you know, they like, it, w- when you are scraping together comics tooth and nail to get this stuff done on your own dime, you don't have the luxury of doing two-part stories. Well, and that's the key. They were doing this on their own dime, and they were yeah. paying for very expensive newsprint paper to print this on. So they had to think about, 
everything that's going to be on every page. How many pages do we realistically have? How many can we realistically afford if this all blows up? Because like by issue four or five, yeah, there was a lot of word out there and it was, there was some buzz and people were starting to get excited, but they were still only printing like 3000 of these. So selling 3000 is one thing, you know, but that's expensive. And like they came to their buddy and said, can you front us 500 bucks? We'll give you 200 copies of issue number one. And he was like, yeah, totally. I love you guys are doing here's 500 bucks. And he ended up selling for the elementals. (laughs) (laughs) Dumb. I like, I remember very distinctly before, before my family moved out to Tabor. uh, So I was, you know, young, but pre age 10, uh, or maybe 10 or 11. And I think the cartoon may have already hit, um, but it was popular enough that People Magazine did a little blurb about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My mom religiously read People Magazine. It came out, it came every Monday. And she was like, oh, hey, look at this. It's a, like a comic book thing. And uh, she showed it to me and I was like, oh yeah, this is uh, some new cartoon that's out, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And they actually reprinted that first drawing of Michelangelo or I mean, he may not have even had a name, but he definitely had nunchucks because they were strapped to his little wrist thing because he right. didn't have fingers. Um, that proto turtle drawing that we talked about earlier, like they put that in people magazine. I'm like weird. Yeah. And that's when I kind of got the sense that like these guys developed this idea from that early kind of germ, that seed of an idea and it became a phenomenon in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, the cartoon, I think, launched in 1987. The comic came out in 1984. So, I mean, do that math. It, yeah. It's, it's and like, not a lot of time in between. Right. And like in between six, launching later, and then somebody getting it, uh, taking attention of it. Yeah. Like six years later, these guys are millionaires effectively oh yeah i mean yeah. like the playmates is blowing up the toys are out it's over like now oh, yeah and bang. it like ruined you know it ruined peter laird's life and oh yeah we'll deal oh it, yeah. like it's a very touching ep- episode of the toys that made us I, I highly recommend it because it's the first meeting it's the reunion of eastman and laird for the first time in a really long time and it like pat it like brings their friendship back together yeah. it's the best it's very sweet and i think uh, uh, yeah, their whole story is just kick ass i don't think you yeah. can you can even argue with these first four comics, they are by it all the way. No question. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's some stilly stuff and there's some, uh, certainly some execution issues that you could nitpick like my issue with, you know, the, the pacing of issue two or whatever. Um, the art is good when it's good and kind of dodgy when it's rough, you know, but that's, that's, that's every comic. And that's certainly every, new comic from a fledgling group of creators. Like sure, I, sure. This is such a, this was such a wonderfully fully realized idea that, uh, it's, it's no, it's no shock to me that it became the kind of cultural touchstone that it did. Yeah. And I don't know if it made me want to like go back and finish and keep reading the Mirage stuff, but it did kind of put a bug in my ear about, maybe wanting to go back and start the IDW era. It's great. Because I know that I know how much people celebrate that run. And I know it's not the same. It's great. Eastman is Eastman is involved. Yeah. And it's, it's, I probably more so than any 
any other run not done by Eastman and Laird, I think the IDW run draws on a love and appreciation and affection for the original material. Without a doubt. It has their because full they, blessing too. They And like if you look at those old like if you look at those old image comics, they're barely teenage mutant ninja turtles. Yeah. Like they're weird. Yeah. You know? It's extreme and kind the, of stuff. But, you know. Yeah, and it's Yeah, I this did really make me remember how much I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, got me too. And I I, I have like four hardcovers of the IDW stuff. I read the first one. I was like, God, this is so good. And then I didn't, never picked up number two. I'm like, I got to sit down and read these. They're so good. <laughs> They're so good. It, it's also so painfully 1980s. Like, I love it. Yeah. Because uh, like, other than like the gritty, you know, it's the mean streets of New York in 1984 or whatever. Uh, the the backup story in issue four that they added after the fact uh, uh, is all about them playing laser tag, rooftop laser tag, yeah. but getting way too into it back when laser tag was a, a huge thing. And it's just like, yeah, I love it. It's I great. I love it so yeah. much. And it's, it's just also this like independent, roughly thrown together, cool package, but it's like the kind of stuff that just doesn't even exist anymore. You don't see stuff like this, even like, thanks to modern tools and whatnot, you can make even an independent comic with some talent look pretty slick, you know, and you could tell. Yes. It, it doesn't really cost anything extra, but time. Right. And, and practice to produce a comic digitally with modern professional production. Values. Definitely. And you could tell, like the, if you, if is, you know enough about Photoshop or whatever, like you can make a pretty slick looking independent. Yeah. This is two guys living in the same apartment just hammering out a comic book the old-fashioned way and turned them into millionaires. It's an amazing story. Yeah, love to see it. Joe, now that you've picked up your TMNT slack, it's time to retire to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we can use our newly acquired dark ninja magic to see the future of next week's comics. Why don't you tell the nerds about your must-read pick for next NCBD Wednesday, August 26th. Awabunga. My pick for next week is The Immortal Thor, number one from Marvel Comics. It's written by Al Ewing with art by Martin Kokolo. It's 56 pages for $6.99. Here's your solicit. Al Ewing and Martin Kokolo and Alex Ross give the God of Thunder the immortal treatment. That was in air quotes in case you couldn't tell. Oh, 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 gotcha. It makes sense now. Yeah, that's what it changed. I, I didn't lower my volume, but I changed my tone. I see, I see. In Norse myths, they called him Thunderer. Viewer has he been called, and Horidi. The gods know him as Asgard's king, keeper of Mjolnir, hero of the tales. When injustice grips the earth and ancient powers bring down the sky, he fights for those who cannot. And when the tale is done, we will know what that cost him. This is the story of the immortal Plus a bonus page written by Jonathan Hickman. Who are the gods? This is like, is this in every comic? Way to take the wind out of the sails, you assholes. I know, right? I swear to God, we've read this in like seven comics. I bet it is at the end of every solicit for every comic coming out next week. 
uh, yeah, I mean, no brainer. We uh, we were huge fans of the Immortal Hulk. We're huge fans of Al Ewing in general. We're also big time Thor guys. And so, yeah, I cannot wait for Al Ewing to put his stamp on the Immortal Thor. It's the return of a more traditional Kirby-esque costume with the big blue dots on it. And I'm yeah. very excited about that. Coco's drawing the hell out of it, too. Man, it looks good. It looks really, really it's, good. I mean, this this comic, uh, something really major will have to happen for this comic to not be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very, very excited. Expectations are at an all-time high. My pick for next week, it's also about a big, ripped-up macho character. It's the Penguin, number one, from DC. <laughs> it's 32 pages, three ninety nine, written by Tom King with art by Raphael De La Torre. Here is your solicit. Tom King and Raphael De La Torre's all-new story of the iconic villain, Revenge is for the Birds! After retiring to Metropolis following his death, Oswald Cobblepot finds himself forced back into the unpredictable and violent Gotham City underworld as a pawn of the United States intelligence community. Son of a bitch. Gotham's, I hate when that happens. <laughs> Gotham's criminal element has been evolving since he was last in the city with his bastard twin children ruling the Iceberg Lounge. And what of the man he framed for his death? Batman. Is the penguin walking into a death sentence? From award-winning and best-selling writer Tom King who worked on Batman and the Human Target, a bunch of other stuff. And artist Raphael De La Torre, who worked on Daredevil, comes a bloody, hard-boiled tale of redemption and revenge. And this one firmly counts. This is right in continuity with your bad you know, stories. I, 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 and honestly, I, didn't, I hadn't read the solicit. I know that they announced it. I had no idea that it was actually taking place in the present day following the events of his previous appearance. I don't think there was any clues until we read this solicit. I don't think there was any clues. Yeah. I think we I all just assumed. I thought it was going to be like a like young penguin making his way yeah. in the world today. No, it's, it is 100% a sequel to, like right in line with Chick, to a Chick, Chip Zdarsky's Batman run. Yeah. Uh, this does sounds not. Sounds great. This does not take place in the Tom king verse as we like to say. No, it does not. <laughs> the good news is, following his death in the pages of Batman, the Penguin is feeling much better. Well, he never died. He faked it. Faked his death. Yeah, I, I know, Matt. That's the joke. Okay. He, he's feeling much better. You could say, following his fake death, he's feeling fake much better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he might not actually be feeling better. He yeah. might be faking that as well. The THN must-read trade for next week is Spy Superb. It's a hardcover from Dark Horse. It's by Matt and Charlene Kint. It's 176 pages for $39.99. You know those Matt Kent hardcovers are really cool. So the price seems high, but I am not bulking at he it. He packs them full of all kinds of extra stuff. That, that, yeah, and, and so you know cool. what? It's actually it's actually going to say a little bit here about, about the hardcover at the end, and, and so you'll, you'll see what kind of stuff they're doing here. Here's your solicit from New York Times bestselling and Harvey Award-winning graphic novelist Matt Kent comes this deluxe hardcover edition of the humorous espionage adventure. John Wick meets Wes Anderson in this mystery thriller about a secret organization that's developed the perfect spy. Who is the perfect spy? A spy who doesn't even realize they're a spy, a.k.a. the useful idiot. This particular useful idiot is named Jay. Jay is sent on missions without even realizing he's on a mission until he picks up the wrong phone with the wrong secret intel. And now Russian hit squads and elite assassins are after him. 
but Jay believes he was a sleeper agent and really is the spy superb. His complete obliviousness and lack of survival skills may be the only thing that saves him in this globe-trotting espionage tale where nothing is what it seems, but also eh, kind of is actually what it seems. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> this collects Spice Superb 1 through 3 with brand new cover art in a deluxe hardcover format with gold embossed foil, a ribbon marker, and craft paper like dusk jacket that hides the book in plain sight. Neat. That's fun. <laughs> what does that what does that mean? I don't know. What does but that it's look neat. like? Spy Superb was great fun. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek spy tale, as the solicit said. Sort of like, you know, the man who knew too little. You know, he kind yeah. of gets wrapped up in this thing where he's he's a tool of spy agencies without actually knowing it, but he thinks he's this badass. It's great. It's it's so good. Matt Kent doesn't disappoint when they, he puts out collected editions of his stuff. This was a no-brainer for the uh, trade of the week. Yeah, you reviewed issue one in episode 693. We both liked it, and we both gave it a buy it. It was good, good stuff. Yep. All right. I want to know about this dust jacket that hides the book. That's, I know. That's where they're, right? they're getting me on that. Yeah. If you want to read along with us, be sure to pre-order these comics, or they may not be hidden in plain sight at your local comic shop, but they could be sold out. And tune in next week and listen to us review them too we might be wrong who knows they could be terrible excelsior that is it for teach and 713 next week we are back reviewing new comics we'll have a patreon extra for you it's gonna be awesome but in the meantime Check out our Nerd News Update show and hit your feed every other Monday. And then join us on THN Cover to Cover for our gang hang on Saturdays at 11 o'clock Central. You can check out our Discord for more details there. Joe Patrick, what else do nerds do on our Discord? Maybe you'd like to relive the traumatic death of your favorite Transformer. Let me tell you, that scene of Prowl where the smoke comes out of his mouth, that got me. (laughs) Whoever posted that, yuck. Perhaps you're wondering whatever happened to Aspen Comics. Apparently, they still exist. Or maybe you just want to discuss our question of the week. This week's question is courtesy of Joe Reynolds and Wooly Toots. It's a Titanic team-up. Was there a negative experience that made you distance yourself from a fan community of something that you really loved? So, for example... If you are a fan of Star Wars and then you were in line for, you know, a, a popcorn at the movie theater and a Star Wars fan was an asshole to you and then you hated Star Wars fans, you know, that sort of thing. Like you still that, love the thing, but the fandom turned you off. Like the time that 10-year-old beat me up and took all my pogs and I was like, screw this. Wow. 100%. Right. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly right. You can sign up with the link. Mm-mm. You can sign up for our Discord with the link at twoheadednerd.com slash Discord, where we've got channels for all of our segments. Or you can send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com, and we'll put you on the show. If you're new to the show and you'd rather invest your 401k in Star Wars Pogs than listen to any more, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. You probably need a financial advisor, too, to be perfectly honest. The good news is, you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. THN is a listener-supported podcast. 
It would not be possible without the generosity of donors like our patron, Jay Albright, who refuses to listen to his financial advisor and gives us money. If you like what you hear every week, it's easy to support the show, just like Jay. What does Jay stand for? I don't know. Maybe it stands for Jay. I think he's biblical, like a Jeremiah. Huh? Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Ooh, I like that even better. <laughs> that's not bad. <laughs> that, that's not biblical, but it's uh, Jehoshaphat is a fun J name. You can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com backslash two-headed nerd. And I don't care what Matt says, investing in THN is always a sound financial decision. Yeah, definitely. It's all up and to the right on our graphs, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen, creators of Little Monsters at Image Comics. The Harvey Award nominees were named this week, and Little Monsters is up for Book of the Year. Where do these monstrously talented creators, but we here at THN have been screaming praise about your collaborations for years. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics, or your retailer might let a group of little monsters with filthy hands rifle through them before giving them to you this is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off.